Hello, this is part two of our series on one of the great travellers of history, Ibn Battuta. If you've not listened to part one yet, you might want to go back and give that a go, but I'm not your mother, you can listen to this on its own. We rejoin our hero, just as he has taken up a job in India working for the Sultan Unpronounceable. I tried it in the first episode and absolutely mangled it, but you'll get the point. Enjoy! While Ibn Battuta is working at this court, he does have some time to get away from the palace and do a bit of travelling and see some of the sights of this new country. Which is where I will come on to his description of a rhino, which, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are, we are talking about him describing a rhino probably about 20 or so years after he'd actually seen it. So it's smaller than an elephant, but its head is many times larger than an elephant. It has a single horn between its eyes, which is about three cubits in length and a spanning breadth. Which, yeah, does sound a bit like a rhino that my four-year-old niece would draw rather than an actual rhino. But I think we can give him a pass on that because it was 20 years later. <laughs> yeah, I'm just imagining like a giant head. <laughs> that's that's not it, practical. <laughs> it is, yeah. That is quite a large head on a tiny body. <laughs> but mm. but the rhino does then go on to kill a couple of his mates while they're out riding. the The amount of times in this book that Ibn Battuta should have died by all rights but doesn't is quite spectacular. Mm. And I will um. I will talk a little bit about one of those situations where he really should have died. As I mentioned, the ruler of... So he was in Delhi at the time, which was the capital of this realm that he was in. And as I mentioned, he was working for the sultan, who was quite a flaky individual. People tended to fall in and out of favour with this guy at the drop of a hat. And Batuta himself, he swang between living the high life at various periods to being in fear of his life when some slight meant that he was suspected of treason. So sounds a little bit like a friend you might have who has anger management and drinking problems and kind of the whole group have to tiptoe around them to keep happy. And Eventually, he did end up having to leave the city after almost getting killed by this guy. The reason that this ended up happening was that he went to visit a scholar and an ascetic who lived in a cave outside the city of Delhi. And he got on quite well with this guy, used to consult with him quite often. But this scholar ended up falling out of favour with the, with the sultan and was captured and tortured by his guards. And he, under torture, he did mention that Ibn Battuta was one of his friends, and as, well, as large chunks of the 20th century have taught us about purges, as soon as you start mm -hmm. telling people under torture that certain people are your friends, they tend to get rounded up as well. 
Yeah, it just spirals. So, quote from his book again. Thereupon, the sultan gave orders that four of his slaves should remain constantly beside me in the audience hall. And customarily, when he takes this action with anyone, it rarely happens that that person escapes. So, a little better. I mean, at least he's not getting tortured. He's essentially put under house arrest, which I think in the circumstances is slightly better, but I think I'd certainly still be in fear of my life at that point. Mm -hmm. does just kind of sound like you're on hold for the executioner's block. So his way of getting out of this is he starts fasting and reciting the Quran over and over to his captors, which... I quite like it. It's another tactic that has been used throughout history, taking a page from the old IRA playbook and going on hunger strike, and perhaps also just trying to annoy your guards by constantly yammering at them as well. He does eventually get released from captivity. This ends up happening after the scholar who he had been visiting is executed, and while Batuta still has a head on his shoulders, he decides that this is probably a good time for him to be hitting the old trail again. And he uses a diplomatic mission that has recently arrived in the country to decide to go to China. On his way to China, he ends up travelling first to Mauritius, which I've talked about a little bit already. He wasn't a huge fan of Mauritius, couldn't really get on with the chill island interpretation of Islam they had there. So I mentioned about the short marriages that they tended to have, which functioned a little bit more like dating, really. And the women tended to walk around topless, which for a man who was such a horn dog, he didn't seem to like very much. Again, perhaps a little hypocritical. Eventually, the islanders <laughs> did get sick of him and they packed him on a boat <laughs> off to Ceylon on Sri <laughs> Lanka. And from there, ends up spending a bit of time there, ends up back in the south of India before he ends up getting to China. And I think this is another thing about his travels generally, is that he does seem to make an effort to go off on these little side trips wherever he can. He's not very interested in actually getting to his goals. I think he, he just quite likes getting out and seeing bits of the world. But it is while he was in the south of India that he comes across yet another brush with death where he is kidnapped and almost executed. This happened because while he was in the south of India, so in the kind of modern-day state of Tamil Nadu, he was out supporting the local ruler there by trying to fight with local bandits. And while he was out, he ends up getting separated from his team. And so he says he gets set upon by about 40 bandits. He puts up a really good fight and he's really tough, obviously, because it's his story. But yeah. he, he eventually ends up getting taken prisoner. And they do intend to execute him. And at this point, I think he does talk a little bit more truthfully in his story because he does exactly what I think I'd do in that situation. And he breaks down and starts begging for his life. Or, as he puts it, I spoke to the old man and tried to gain his favour, and he took pity on me, which is very succinct for, I think, crying and <laughs> begging on your knees. But, <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, probably. Again, take that for what you will. And it was at the, around this time that he did... I misspoke a little earlier on, actually. It wasn't the brother in China who I was talking about earlier who saved his life. It was during this episode of events that the second... Yeah, that's right. The second brother that he was told he was going to meet in Alexandria saves his life as part of this whole this whole debacle that he gets himself into. Mm. But he does manage to get away from from his captors. He manages to escape death once again and does eventually at this point make it to China where he also gets to say hi to this third brother and fill this prophecy that he was given. At this point, he's been on the road for about 15 years, so bandwidth of communications isn't quite what it is in the 21st century in terms of getting messages from one person to another. But when he's entering the country, he does mention what I thought was quite an interesting quirk of immigration bureaucracy, just because it sounds really modern to, well, certainly to my ears. I say my ears, I was reading it, but you can't really say my eyes. But me, anyway, it felt very modern to me when I was <laughs> reading it. He talks about when foreigners entered China, they would all have a portrait um, drawn of them. So I couldn't actually find a copy of this portrait. Um, I think it would have been quite a good one to have been able to show you that for a contemporary mm. because they are mm. basically like medieval mugshots, these things. That's um, interesting. Yeah. And the idea of it was that then if while you're in the country and you committed a crime, the local law enforcement could put up wanted pictures of you. Mm. So, And it, it just felt, well, I suppose it's a little bit like when you go into countries like the United States now, you need to have, you know, your fingerprint taken and a mug shot and they generally treat you like a criminal on your way in. But mm. just for this to be happening in the 1300s, I found it very surprising that they had that kind of infrastructure to be able to be doing these kind of things. But then I think China was a little bit like this. Generally, it was quite a... Well, the impression that you get from his writings and I suppose other accounts of the time is that it was quite a closed society. But in a way, it did make it quite good for travelling. And Ibn Battuta does mentioned that certainly of all the countries that he visited he referred to it as the safest and best country to be traveling around he says that a man travels for nine months alone without with great wealth and has nothing to fear and what's responsible for this he says is that in every town in the country there is what's called a funduk or a hostel and at the end of each day all of the travellers and foreigners, they're expected to go back to their hostel and the police officer, the local police officer will kind of count all of the travellers in and at that point they'll shut the door and lock everyone in for the night. And then at the next morning, the police officer and his secretary will come round and they'll ask for your details, ask where you're going and arrange for you to stay at the next funduk. It all feels a little bit a little bit controlling, I suppose, for someone much of a free-spirited traveller as Ibn Battuta. But he 
he was pretty positive about it. He said it made him feel very safe and it was actually quite a good way of allowing him to get around the country. Did you have to pay to stay in these funducks or was it like a, you know, how, how did that work? Yeah, so you did pay a small amount of money to be staying in them. But I think the government were also just quite in favour of having them and, you know, making sure that people stayed there because mm. a large part of the reason for this funduk system was that they could keep a very close eye on, you know, what foreigners were doing in the country. Mm. Interesting. Which certainly, given some of the things that we'd get up to in China a few centuries after Ibn Battuta, you can certainly see why they wanted to keep an eye on foreigners. We did have yes. a <laughs> bit of a history of nicking their technology when they didn't keep an eye on us. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, and um, so while he is in the country, he again picks up a bit of work. He talks a little bit about the country itself and the women, as I've mentioned, he does like talking about the women in places. Unlike Marco Polo, he does pick up on some things that don't get mentioned as part of his travels. So he does mention that China has a great wall that somehow Marco Polo managed to miss. And he's also, in the book, he's also really quite fascinated by the concept of paper money. He talks about it with a bit of confusion really um see he almost comes comes out with this idea that well paper's just this arbitrary commodity for measuring wealth it's nothing like gold at all <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah he he didn't quite end up following that train of thought to its logical conclusion unfortunately otherwise we might be doing an episode on glorious comrade batuta but yeah, he doesn't quite get that far with it. <laughs> but yeah, so if you are backpacking around hostels in the modern era, you probably are a member of a very proud tradition going back as far as Ibn Tutor in terms of traveling around, meeting people, perhaps hopefully not getting locked in for the night. Although I'm sure there are some hostels that I've stayed in in regions where I wish they perhaps had. And um, this script, it's already far too long it's probably what i get for trying to summarize a 900 page book in the length of a short podcast um like i say i will perhaps come back to this in the future if people do find hearing his travel stories interesting i will just touch on a couple of other things that happened to him after he leaves china and um, when he's on the way back to tangier because that does take him quite a long time to work his way back as you can imagine in 1300s so he heads back through the middle east and when he's in homs in modern day syria he comes across the black death there in 1348 another time when he really ought to have died and somehow manages not to well the black death follows him through for quite a large chunk of his travels at this point so he does go from Homs to Gaza to Alexandria, and the plague does just seem to be travelling a little bit ahead of him everywhere. I'm not going to go into conspiracies and say that he was bringing it with him, but <laughs> yeah, mm -hmm. Some, somebody else. Well, I'm sure there were certainly other people on the road who were yeah bringing those things around. 
then went on another of his hatches. I believe at this point it was his fifth and final hatch that he did, which, given that you own, you're only obliged to do it once in your life, is quite impressive. And as I mentioned a little earlier on, he did then go back via Andalusia, where he was going to fight in the Reconquista, but, well, not in the Reconquista, against the Reconquista, but didn't end up doing that for the reasons I was talking about a little earlier. Hmm. He then does go briefly back to Tangier, but before long gets itchy feet and decides that he's going to spend three years travelling around West Africa. So this is one of the bits that I didn't really want to touch on, just because there is another podcast that I really like that BBC do, which is called You're Dead to Me. And they do an episode about Ibn Battuta, and their focus is very much on his travels in West Africa. I only realised they'd actually done an episode on Ibn Battuta shortly after I'd written the script for this. Um, So that's why I've ended up doing it as well, even though they're doing it far better. But yeah, if you want to know more about his travels in West Africa, that's very interesting. And while he was there, he spent time in the court of Mansa Suleiman in Mali, who was the brother of a guy who I might do an episode on called Mansa Musa, because Mansa Musa, have you come across him, Matt? Oh, yes. They're one of the rich, well, arguably the richest person to ever live. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and that's kind of why I want to do an episode on him at some point, just because when he was doing his Hajj pilgrimage to Mecca, he managed to crash the Egyptian economy with the amount of gold that he was throwing around when he passed through, mm. which, mm. you know, say say what you will about Elon Musk, but I don't think he's ever managed to crash a major economy just through his holiday spends. <laughs> and it's also just quite an interesting period that, Ibn Battuta was in that area because it was during this time when Islam was beginning to take off in West Africa more broadly and he's considered quite a good primary source for the time from an era where there aren't a lot of primary sources for the takeoff of Islam in West Africa so it's just an interesting time in his life. Eventually, he returns to Tangier in 1354, and he's back for good at that point, 29 years after setting out and 73,000 miles further down the road from where he started. And when he got back, he was asked by the ruler of the city to write his story for posterity, which is obviously why we all know about this now. If he hadn't been asked to do that, then maybe he would have been lost to history. Who knows? He lived out the rest of his life, still working as a judge in Tangier. The records don't show whether he married again at this point, because, as I mentioned, most of what we know about his life does come from his own writings about his travels. And so we don't really know a lot about what he does after he goes back to Tangier. But... Eventually, he does die in 1368, so about 14 years after he returned, at the age of 65. Mm. Um, I found it another thing that I did find somewhat interesting, just about, um, well, Marco Polo and Ibn Battuta, these two 
you know, famous medieval travellers is that they both went out to see so much of the world and then eventually end up settling down back in the place where they grew up. Um, I don't don't really, there's not really a point for me to make there. I just thought it was an interesting, yeah, an interesting observation. Whether... I mean, was it a, was it maybe just a case that he travelled until he was too tired or too, you know, whatever to not travel and the easiest place to settle is his home? Had his, I think his parents had died at that point, right? Um, oh, yes. Yes, I was actually going to mention that and ended up script it, skipping over it in the script. Yeah, so his father died while he was travelling around um, quite quite a long time before he returned. And then I did mention that before he went to West Africa, he was briefly back in Tangier. And his mum died of the Black Death about three months before he returned to Tangier, which mm. is pretty bad timing. Mm. But, yeah, I think it is one of those things where certainly when he's travelling around West Africa, you can see in his writings that he's starting to get a bit jaded and middle-aged. And I think probably just by the time he finished with that, he was he was just ready for settling down. But, yeah, whatever it is mm. about, you know, the... Yeah, the place that you grew up and the place that you consider home just for yeah him and Marco Polo. They both decided that was where they wanted to live out their days. So that is an extremely, extremely high-level overview where I've just picked out a few of the things from the book that I found particularly interesting in the stories that I quite liked. As I mentioned, the book itself is really easy to read. And... I will finish on a quote that I I didn't actually see in the translation of the book that I used, but it is attributed to Ibn Battuta. So I don't know if it's one of those that is a little bit like how Churchill and Einstein constantly get quotes misattributed to them, but I do like it. Travelling, it leaves you speechless, and then it makes you into a storyteller. <laughs> That's a good one. It sure is. And our story here is done for the day. So um, are there any thoughts on what we've talked about there or any comments? I mean, I think I think it's interesting. Like you said, he, he ends up back where he starts. Um, and it's also interesting that he travelled so far and yet we haven't really heard about it. I, I mean... It, it seems like he didn't travel a lot in the Western world. So maybe, maybe that's part of it. Maybe if he'd, you know, traveled more in the West, there would be more of a, of a sort of like a, a, hit, a record of him. Um, but no, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, people were traveling such long distances and that there was actually a lot of the same structure we see in the modern society back then, you know, like you're saying with the passports and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Good, good to them. Yeah. And I think, Particularly with travelling around the Islamic world, it was a lot easier to do them. Well, certainly yeah. in the modern era, you know, you basically mm. just had to point your camel in a certain direction and go. Um, well, mm. bandits, you know, other than bandits, you, you know, nobody really stopped you. But mm. yeah, his one foray into Christendom, which I didn't really touch on here, was he did spend some time in the Byzantine Empire and actually did get to speak to the Byzantine em Emperor, had the 
previous emperor who'd been deposed, who was still alive, kissed his feet while he was there. I mean, mm. the previous emperor kissed Ibn Battuta's feet that way around, which yep. is yep. certainly one for the Instagram, if you can get a picture of it. But but other than that, he yeah didn't really travel in the Western world and Europe, which is, is perhaps why we know a little bit less about him. But it's mm. a fascinating story, and one that I, I wouldn't have come across if I hadn't to happened to walk past this museum while I was in Tangier. But, mm. yeah, funny the things you stumble across. So that will do us for today. The If you do want to get in touch and talk about anything that we've discussed here, or if you want to hear some more Ribbon Batuta, or if I've got anything horrifically wrong that you want to yell at me about, then we have a Twitter, which is at allpointscast. There is also a Gmail, which is um, allpointspod at gmail.com. Got to make sure I get those the right way around. And if you want to get in touch with Matt, then I presume just tie a note to a camel, make it walk 73,000 miles, and it will bump into him at some point. Yep, that's the approved method. It sure is. No animals will be harmed in the making of those notes. <laughs> right. Thank you very much for joining me, Matt. As I mentioned, Thanks, episodes Martin. come out about once a fortnight or so. So if you do want to hear some more, then I'll speak to you in a couple of weeks. Bye then. Bye. Oh, hang on. No, nearly hit the leave meeting. I'm just like, no, I, I, I want to. No, I, I'm I, done I, with you now. Yeah, I'm done with you. Yes. Now go back to the void from whence you came until I ne <laughs> next need to speak to you. <laughs> now I am Dismissed. finished with you. You may go.